Our text for this new series, The City on a Hill, is found in Matthew chapter 5. Very familiar words, but we're going to spend a lot of our time uh, today in Romans chapter 1 because the need is obvious for the church to be a city on a hill. There's a great deal of understanding today, especially in America, about what constitutes a church. Uh, some people feel that they do not need to assemble together as a body of believers in a place called a church anymore, and, and they use facts of house churches and other things, and those are true, but we do not live in a third world country or under communist control. And so uh, we live in a society where there is freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly for believers to come together and to worship together as a church. And I don't have to tell you, there are churches everywhere of all sizes and shapes and flavors and bents and preferences. They're, they're everywhere. Uh, there are churches on every corner. But the reality is not every church functions properly. And I believe these words out of the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus 2,000 years ago picture for us what a church should be and what a church should do. The reason why I think this is a very important series is that the church is being pushed to the margins, pushed out. Much of what is happening in America today is similar to what happened in Germany in the 1930s, where Hitler called in the religious leaders of the country and said, you can have the people on Sunday but I get them the rest of the week. I determine how they think, how they feel, how they act. You can preach your gospel inside your church, but you cannot take it outside the walls. So I believe that for us to talk about being a city on a hill is to stand in opposition of the way that this country is headed in the marginalizing and the trying to silence Christians in our culture. Churches have plateaued and are dying. 800 churches in our convention alone are closing every year. Many have lost their vision and their passion. In inner cities, churches are being abandoned because they don't want to address the culture and the hardships of the inner city, and so we have given over our inner cities to the enemy. One of the reasons why we are planting churches in Baltimore and in Cleveland and in San Francisco in the city is we believe that the city determines what the country does. And we cannot forsake the city. Some areas have too many churches. I mean, there are probably too many churches in Albany, Georgia and in our surrounding area. Not that there aren't lost people, because as we've said often, 88% of the people in our three-county area are lost and unchurched. It's not that there aren't lost people, it's that you've got an aging and declining and dying church taking up ground that's not doing anything God told that church to do. They're not witnessing, they're not caring, they're not sharing, they're reading in their quarterlies and they're sitting around singing Kumbaya while all their young people and their children forsake the church because there's nothing there to attract them to the church. It's a sad testimony that people forget why a church exists. 
And so what I want to do in this series is talk about the church. Jesus made great promises regarding the church. He, he said, I will build my church. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's coming back for the church. The epistles, the letters of Paul and James and John and Peter were written to churches primarily, not to individuals. The last thing Jesus said to John in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were seven letters to churches how we're supposed to think. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. I, I want to be a good physician. I wouldn't make a good physician because I don't like needles or the sight of blood. I, you know, I, the only thing that I think is, is good is, is I think I ought to be able to go in the hospital once a month and be on Demerol for 24 hours so I could chill out a little bit. But, but here's, if we're healthy, how do we stay that way? I want to diagnose some things in this series. If we are a healthy church, and I believe by and large we are, how do we stay that way? Secondly, how do we ensure the future of this church to be healthy, that we have a good, healthy DNA? How do we plant churches with a healthy DNA. You can go start a church, but if it's not sound doctrinally, if it doesn't understand the great commission and the great commandment, it's not going to be a healthy church. How, how do you establish and plant churches and find men to pastor churches with a healthy spiritual DNA? And, and how do we help other churches see the need for a healthy DNA? So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, in this passage, in the verses before it, Jesus uses two illustrations for what we are to be as individuals and what we are to be collectively, salt and light. And so let's look at the first thing, the world of darkness and delusion. Uh, you don't need a history lesson on how dark and deluded this world is. But, but here's what's happening because the church in America has failed to be salt and light. The people on the extremes of a decaying culture are trying to silence the church and trying to, while everybody else comes out of the closet, they're trying to push us into the warehouse and lock it up. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. This is not anything new. This shouldn't surprise us. It has, in fact, happened in almost every culture, empire, and nation in the history of man. So this shouldn't surprise us what is happening in our country. What should surprise us is that the church, in many ways, is buying into this philosophy and this worldview. Romans 1 Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of men who suppress, important word, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are, and this is the first of three times he will say this, without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. If you want to know what professing to be wise and being fools is, listen to a celebrity explain how to deal with life on a talk show. They are professing to be wise, and they are fools. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, because they did this, God gave them over, key verse, to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For this reason, here it comes again, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here it comes, God gave them over, and look at what he gave them over to, a depraved mind. Now go back, professing to be wise, they are fools. Now they're not just fools, they're depraved in their mind. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So here's a God who has revealed himself in creation, and man, because he thinks he's wise, has created chaos. Here's a God who has offered to man intimate relationship with a holy God, who has offered to man eternal life, and man has chosen death and destruction and sin. Although, Paul says, God is clearly seen. Now, go back to that word in verse 18. I probably don't even have to tell you what this means. The word suppress. It means to hold down, to push down. Man in his depraved state, thinking that he is wise, begins to try to push down truth. We don't want to hear that. We don't want that to be discussed. But to suppress it means let's get away from that. Let's get away from talking about values and traditional values and morals and ethics because when you let one thing go, everything goes. And so he says to suppress. Uh, why? Because they're bent on believing a lie. Here's what man does. Man rejected the truth. He rejected the truth. And then 
he refused the truth. And then after you reject and refuse the truth, you abandon it. We are headed toward a day if the church of our Lord and Savior does not stand up and be salt and light, we are headed toward a day when no one will know what truth is. When no one will know the difference between right and wrong. When everything will quit being black and white and it'll just be gray and it's just a matter of your opinion. If that's good for you, it's all right. I don't agree with it, but you can be right and I can be right. Not everybody can be right. There are rights and wrongs. There are rules. There are laws built in by God not to hurt us, but to show us what sin will do to us if we chase after it. And so God has given us truth, but we've rejected it. We've refused it. We've abandoned it. And in the end, when you abandon truth, man begins to think he is nothing more than an evolved snail and he's not a creature created in the image of God. And when man thinks, listen to me, when man thinks he is an animal, he will act like an animal. When we begin to think we are nothing more than another animal. We are not. We are the only thing God created with a soul that lives for all eternity. Everything else lives and it dies. We live forever in heaven or in hell because we have a soul and God created us in his image. And in the darkened state Man, when he thinks he's an animal, then he begins to have to worship something or to bow to something or to try to please something. Your dog does that. Your cat does that. They, they try to please you. They want to please their master. So ignoring God as the master, man creates his own masters. And so he either creates an image of another man or he creates an image in the image of a bird or of wood or of a statue, statue because it all goes back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve believed the lie, you shall be as gods. And so if I can choose what my God looks like, then I'll make him in a way that pleases me. Now note that. Idolatry is creating God in an image that makes you happy, that pleases you, and doesn't demand any adjustments on your part because you can always say to your God, I don't have to follow you. I can go make another one. When you lay aside a holy God, then you begin to have a God in your image rather than God as he is, and the darkness begins to get darker. So idolatry will lead to self-indulgence, and self-indulgence leads to immorality. There is a decline that is going on. It has been since the beginning of time that when man walks in darkness, he becomes self-indulgent, and when he is self-indulgent, he becomes an idolater. And when you kick God to the curb, and the church fails to fulfill her mission to be salt and light, 
you end up with a nation of idol worshipers. Why do you think all the Access Hollywood and Entertainment Tonight and people and us and everything else, why do you think that those magazines sell by the millions and Newsweek has to announce they're going out of business? Because people don't want news, they don't want facts, they want celebrities that they can worship. And by the way, if your God is a Kardashian, I feel really sorry for you. I mean, really sorry. Bless your heart. I mean, if you foam at the mouth over Taylor Swift, I'm really sorry. Because you know what? They're just people. And if you could see the stink in their lives, you wouldn't spend another dime following them. Because they are facades. They are images. They have people helping you to see how they want you to see them. So whether it's celebrities or athletes or politicians, we begin to worship something. And, and by the way, when you put all of your faith, this is free, when you put all of your faith in the government to fix your problems, you've made the government God. You have not worshiped the God of the Bible. Chuck Colson said, today in the West, and particularly in America, the new barbarians are all around us. This time, the invaders have come from within. We have bred them in our families and trained them in our classrooms. They inhabit our legislatures, our courts, our film studios, and our churches. Most of them are attractive and pleasant. Their ideas are persuasive and subtle. Yet these men and women threaten our most enshrined institutions and our very character as people. So let me say we live in a dark land and we need to be a city on a hill. Now, I'm not picking this out among other sins. I'm just following what Paul said. A sin that was very prevalent in the time of Paul, and by the way, at the time of Paul, and shortly after the Roman Empire was beginning to decline, their military was weakened. They could no longer fight on all fronts because they had begun to decay from within most of the emperors and Caesars at the time of Paul and afterwards were homosexuals. When Paul writes Romans 1, he's dealing with the prevalent sin of his society at that time. And it is becoming the prevalent sin of our society. Churches and synagogues and others ordaining gay and lesbian priests and preachers and teachers because, quote, that's just the way they were made. So I want to deal with it. And regardless of what you think about it and regardless what Ellen DeGeneres says about it or anybody else, God has spoken. 
and he has not stuttered. We do not hate, I do not hate, this church does not hate homosexuals. But the God of love and grace and mercy said that is a sin. He didn't say it will be a sin until it's inconvenient for it to be a sin. He said it's a sin. Now, you may not have known this. In fact, I wouldn't have known it if I hadn't picked up on it on Twitter. But Friday was a day when you were supposed to wear purple so that you could show your support for lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgenders. So if you wore that on, thir- on Friday just because that's what you decided to wear, you were making a statement. Now, did they announce that? No, they didn't make that announcement. But it was known within that community. By the way, purple is the color of royalty. It's amazing how darkness tries to steal everything that's good. It's condemned in Scripture in Genesis 18, in 1 Corinthians 6, and in Jude 7. Paul says it is vile, unnatural, and against nature. He says that because of this sin, God gave them up, Romans 1, 24, and 26. What this means is, is that God let them sin and live with the consequences. When God gives someone over, whether they are in witchcraft or homosexuality or anything else, when God gives someone over because he is gracious and because he is kind and because he does not force himself on anyone, he says, you can sin and you can deal with the consequences of it. And so he says in verse 27, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Or, to state it another way, abandoning sinful people to their choices. By the way, that's just not limited to homosexuality. That's limited to anything that controls your life. Alcohol, drugs, it doesn't matter. It's abandoning sinful men to their choices. There are results and consequences of sin. That's what Paul's saying, that we don't sin in isolation and we don't sin without consequences. And this leads to a depraved mind, which means a mind that cannot make sound decisions. That a person gets to the point where they cannot make sound decisions. Now, we don't have time, but Paul lists 24 specific sins after he gets here. And he starts in verse 29, and he lists 24 specific sins, and they're all prevalent in America today. I mean, we could go through and take them one by one. They're all prevalent in America today. But I want to read you this. Always let your enemies tell you what they're thinking. Okay? In the book in the late 1980s, After the Ball, by gay rights activists Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, they they developed a plan to slowly change America's perception of homosexuals who use was used to unify gay advocates and focus their efforts. So in other words, everybody's on the same page in the LGBT agenda. Everybody's on the same page. This book was written in the 1980s. For the last two decades, we have seen progressive steps every few years to change the heart of the country to begin accepting and defending the homosexual lifestyle 
and to promote and even mandate acceptance and approval of them. This list summarizes the actions taken by this movement, which came a lot out of this book. Every few years, and this is run in approximately five-year blocks of time since the 1980s. Every few years, efforts would be taken to advance the agenda. In other words, people, it takes a while for people to absorb change, and so you have to let something kind of work for a while before you bring something else up. That's what this is saying. Number one, first promote homosexuals coming out of the closet and asking that culture just recognize that they are here. You remember that? Just, just acknowledge us. Just recognize that we're here. After a few years, focus on tolerance. Remember that? On tolerance, that whether you agree with a lifestyle or not, that gays be acknowledged as being part of society. After a few years, tolerance becomes a norm and promote acceptance of homosexuality as a healthy and normal lifestyle. After acceptance has taken root, focus on the promotion and defense of homosexuality and the punishment of anyone who disagrees or stands against the lifestyle. We have seen that progression over the last 20 to 25 years. These goals mean that this movement includes indoctrinating students in public schools, restricting the freedom of speech, free speech of opposition, obtaining special treatment for homosexuals, which affects your health care for partners, distorting biblical teaching and science, interfering with freedom of association, advocates of the homosexual agenda seek special rights for homosexuals that other people don't have, such as immunity from criticism and calling it hate speech and hate crimes, just to stand against the issue. From the book, After the Ball, by gay rights activists Marshall Kirk and Hunter Masden in the late 1980s, there was a six-point plan set forth as to how they could transform the beliefs of ordinary Americans with regard to homosexual behavior in a decade-long frame. Quote, the agenda of homosexual activists is basically to change America from what they perceive as looking down on homosexual behavior to the affirmation of and the societal acceptance of homosexual behavior. Thus, propagandistic advertising can depict all opponents of the gay movement as homophobic bigots who are not Christian and the propaganda can further show them, homosexuals, as being criticized, hated, and shunned. This has happened because the church has failed to speak up about what God says is sin. Adultery is sin, immorality is sin, drunkenness, there's a lot of sins. But because the church has failed to speak up, now we've gone from don't ask, don't tell to some very awkward situations in our military which can weaken our military. We now have gay marriage on the agenda. It is now a part of a major political platform that we support gay marriage, and it'll just keep going and keep going. And one day, because the church turned off the lights, it will dominate our culture. Now, this is not a political speech. 
This is a sermon out of Romans 1. But let me, let me be clear here. According to any valid survey, there are 3.5 million out of 320 million people in America, 3.5 million people who would be classified as lesbians, gays, bisexuals, or transgender. 3.5 million out of 320 million. You wouldn't know the percentage was that small by watching comedies, movies, television, or the news. You would think it was 100 million. It all fits with the agenda. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Because if we move into a cycle where the majority of Americans look to government as their God and allow darkness to pervade in the land, you are looking at an election in November that is the last chance evangelicals will ever have to influence this nation in a ballot box. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but you better vote for light, Amen. not for yourself. You better vote for future, for morals and values. Those things matter. Those things matter. We're not electing a pastor of the United States. We're not electing a pastor as mayor or as city councilman or as governor or anything. We're electing people that should represent our values. That is not the church or the Bible telling you how to vote. Paul didn't get a chance to vote, by the way. He lived under a dictatorship. And when the church was silent, 11 million people lost their lives in Germany because Hitler took over and 11 million people were led to their slaughter while the church timed their singing to sing loud enough and play the organ loud enough to cover up the cries of the Jews being led to concentration camps. And as one theologian said in Germany, we kept silent while they killed the gypsies and the Russians and the Jews. And then when they came to kill us, nobody spoke for us. The church has to be a city on a hill. Now, let me be very clear. This church does not hate homosexuals. You can hate the sin and love the sinner. And to tell someone that they are living in sin is not hateful. It's loving them enough that you don't want them to die in their sin and to die with a depraved mind and to die deceived by things that are not true. So let me just wrap this up quickly. The words of Christ and light. Jesus faced the darkness. Darkness is confronted by the light of the world. In him there is no darkness. This is not just a line between good and evil. This is a line between light and darkness. Foolishly, man thinks he is enlightened. Darkness allows us to compare ourselves to others. And here's where we get in trouble. When darkness allows us to compare ourselves to others, four things happen. We begin to think, I'm not as bad as they are. By the way, the same blood it takes to save the vilest sinner it takes to save you. None of us are better than anybody else. I'm not as bad as they are. I'm better than most. 
That's religious moralism. That's not Christianity. Well, we're better than a lot of people in this world. We're all sinners saved by grace. Number three, we're good, decent people. That's religious moralism. That's not being a light. That's not being salt and light in the community. Number four, I'm trying hard to be better. Our efforts are in vain. All these are signs of human goodness, but here's the difference. Human goodness compared to other human goodness never gets to the root of the problem. We hold up human goodness into the light of the godliness and the holiness of our God, and that's where we see ourselves as we really are. It's not by comparing myself to somebody in this room or somebody outside this room or somebody I agree with or don't agree with. It is when I hold my life up in light of the holiness of God and I see the unholiness of my life that I am a sinful man in need of a Savior. And that light came into my life and revealed to me the darkness of my heart and the depravity of my soul. And I turned to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it transformed my life. It's the only hope that people had. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the key is we're to turn on the lights so people can see Christ. Last thing, the work of the church. Jesus said to his followers, you are the light of the world. We are to show his light. We are to extend his light. We are to reflect his light. So there's three things here, and then we're going to wrap up. Number one, we are called a lamp. We are called a lamp. John the Baptist was called a bright and shining lamp by Jesus Christ. We are called to be like John the Baptist, shining the light of the gospel of good news into the hearts of people who are darkened in their understanding. It's not our light. It's his light. We are a lamp. We reflect his light like the moon reflects the sun. Secondly, we are called to expose evil. We are called to expose evil. The church is to be light, and a church can't be silent in that. We, we cannot have the mentality that says, we're here. You know where to find us. Look in the yellow pages. If you need us, we're here. We have to be light in this world. And that's going to bring criticism. And that's going to bring misunderstanding. Because in a depraved and deluded mind, the world thinks that we hate them because we speak about sin. We don't hate them. We hate the sin that trapped us too. But we were set free from that. And if you've got good news, you ought to tell it. You ought to share it. And so we are called to expose evil. And then thirdly, we're called to be his witnesses. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God who first ordered light to shine in darkness has flooded our hearts with his light. We now can enlighten men only because we can give them knowledge of the glory of God as we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. We are called to be a lamp. We're called to expose, wit expose evil. And we are called to be his witnesses. Our job is not to say, well, these are the sins I want to confront. 
Because sin is sin. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. If we don't allow Jesus to pay the price for our sins, we die in our sin, and we suffer for eternity for our sins. Because, see, sin was judged at the cross. All sin. The little white lie, the stealing out of the cash register, the embezzlement, all the things. Everything Paul mentions in Romans 1, I mean, it's a litany of things. All of that put Jesus on the cross. And God loves us, and he doesn't force himself on us. He's a gentleman. The Holy Spirit will come and prod us and prick our hearts and call us to repent of our sin and to turn from our ways and to get a new life and to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be a witness of. You see, moral relativism takes all of this stuff and gets on talk shows and on news programs, and all they do is talk about that. But they don't offer any solution. The gospel offers a solution. The gospel offers freedom. The gospel offers deliverance. The gospel opens eyes and cleans out hearts. Anybody can get on and say, well, I believe in morals and values, and so I'm for this and against this. But if you don't offer people a solution, you haven't really offered them anything. You've identified the problem, but it's like a doctor saying, I know to diagnose the problem, I just don't know that we can fix it. You want a doctor that can diagnose the problem and shine the light on it and fix it, whether it's in an MRI or an EKG or whether it's with surgery or whatever it is, you want that doctor to cut open the problem and to deal with it and to say, if you'll let me, if you'll trust me, if you'll put your life in my hands as best we know how, we can deliver you from this and set you free from this and you can live a good life. Now, if you want to ignore that doctor, your chances get real slim. If the doctor says, do this, and you can live this much longer, and you ignore it, then you chose to live with the problem instead of letting somebody deal with the problem. It's the same way with the gospel. God can show you, here's what you need, here's what I've done, here's what I've provided for you, but if you don't put yourself on the altar before God and let him clean out your heart, then you know it, but it won't change your life. The only way it changes your life is for you to internalize what Christ has done for you in the cross. And I want to tell you this. There's nobody that has gone so far that God cannot forgive. There's nobody that has sinned so much that God cannot cleanse. There's nobody that has gone into the depths of depravity so deep that they don't recognize themselves and their family doesn't recognize themselves that God cannot say, I can fix that. God makes all things new. He changes the direction of our heart. He changes our want-tos. He changes our desires. He changes our focus. He changes our future. And the message of the city on the hill is to turn the light on 
not to curse the darkness. Just turn the light on. The light takes care of the darkness. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? We're going to have a time of invitation. And as we do, I'm just going to ask uh, uh, Heather and Mark that we just play during this time of invitation. Our staff's going to be here at the front. It's not going to be a long invitation. I I had to start with the negative to get to the positive about why the need is obvious. But if you need Christ today, I'm going to beg you on the mercy and love of God to give your heart to Christ today. To allow Christ to change your heart and to make you a new person. I've, I've never met anybody who's come to know Jesus that has ever been disappointed in him. I met people who have joined a church and been disappointed in a church or in a preacher, but not in Christ. Because Christ will do what he says he will do. And so while Heather plays, I'm just going to ask you just to step out from where you are. Just Christians be praying, praying about how you can be a light in this world that is walking continually in darkness, how you can be a light in your school, in the community, in your neighborhood, in your business, in your home, how you can be the light that God wants you to be, that you'll not fear the darkness, but that you'll shine the light of the love of Christ in the darkness. If you're here today, I just want to ask you just step out from where you are. You can ask the person next to you if they would just step aside for a moment, and they'd be glad to. Just step out and just come down and say to one of these men here, I, I need to trust Jesus today. I need to give my heart to Christ today. Now, while you're praying, I want to remind you of this and ask you to pray specifically. Every one of you in this room knows someone who is walking in darkness. They've been blinded. They've been deceived. Uh, Their lives are defeated and broken. You know somebody. It's maybe a member of your family. Maybe somebody you work with. You know somebody that's walking in darkness. Would you just pray for them right now that God would use you to be light for them. That God would give you wisdom and discernment on how to be light for them. They don't need you to beat them over the head with a Bible. They don't need you shaking your fist in their face. What they need is to see the light of the love of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life that overcomes the darkness. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. So we have something to pray about and something to do, to pray about being that light and to go out and to be that light. Not just to talk about it inside these walls, but to share it outside these walls.
Father, I pray that today I've uh, handled a very serious and sensitive topic with grace. Lord, I pray that I see people as you see them. Lord, I, I don't want to see people through a grid of politics or philosophies. I want to see people through your grid. And Lord, it's like Tom Elliff reminded us, it gets real simple when it's just they're either saved or lost. It really simplifies life. Because everybody we meet, everybody we know is either saved or lost. And so, Father, since that's the case and that's well stated in your word, it's bigger than any particular sin. It's just sin. We have a sin nature. We have a bent towards sin. And so, Father, I pray that this week as I run into people and as I encounter people that... Uh, I will either see them as brothers and sisters in Christ or as sinners in need of a Savior to love them and forgive them. Lord, help us to see with your eyes, to hear with your ears, to feel with your heart toward a lost and dying world. That we can be a light, a witness, that the light in us can shine bright and shine far into a world that is falling further and further into darkness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.